0: Welcome to episode 43 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Jessica Zahn, resident at the University of Illinois at Chicago and member of the RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Andy Mayer, a past AAEM board member and past editor of Common Sense. Today, Dr. Zahn and Walker discuss how to make the right choice when evaluating job opportunities.
1: Hi everyone, this is Jessica Zahn. I am a PGY2 at University of Illinois at Chicago and today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Walker. Can you introduce yourself? Sure.
2: I'm Andy Walker. I'm a board certified specialist in emergency medicine. I did my residency in Jacksonville, at Shands Jacksonville. I've been involved in the American Academy of Emergency Medicine since it was founded in 93. I've been on the board of directors, I think, for 12 or 13 years and spent five years as editor of Common Sense. And currently I'm chairman of the Government and National Affairs Committee and president of the Tennessee chapter.
1: So today we're going to be talking about job opportunities, and I think this is a really important topic for the PGY2s who are soon to become threes and the interns ascending to senior status. Obviously, the third year should have already kind of have an idea, but I think it'll be most helpful to ones and twos. So with that, let's go ahead and kind of start down a progression. How do you go about deciding what kind of job you're looking for as an attending?
2: Well, first, you have to know yourself. You can't figure out what kind of job would be a good fit if you don't understand what you want from the job. For instance, in my case, when I came out of residency, the thing that was most important to me was to see trauma and critically ill patients. And there are two ways to do that. You can go to an academic medical center that gets referrals, or you can go somewhere that's at least a couple of hours away from the nearest academic medical center so that you see all the sick people in your area before you transfer them. And I wanted to return to my home of uh, Southern Appalachia, so I chose the latter. And wound up in a small city about uh, an hour northeast of Atlanta called Gainesville, Georgia. And uh, it covered a huge area. It covered all of northeast Georgia up into North Carolina. We saw a lot of trauma, a lot of sick patients, and transferred almost nothing out. Burn patients were about the only thing we had to transfer to Atlanta. And I loved the practice. I loved the town. I would still be there to this day if I had been treated fairly from a business point of view. The drawback to that job was that it was run by contract management group, a company that no longer exists. And I knew what I was getting into. I know those companies skim you know, 25% of the revenue off the top, even after they charge the doctor for malpractice insurance and coding and billing services. But it was five times more than I was making as a resident, so I thought, you know, I don't really care if they rob me if I'm still getting this much money, as long as my practice is interesting and the town is good. And the town was great. Uh, My practice was very interesting. But the thing I didn't bank on, the thing I didn't expect, was the lack of control over my own department. And to give you just one example and how it gets under your skin over time, The director there was an employee of the contract management group. The rest of us were independent contractors. The director made the day shift 11 hours long and the night shift 13 hours long because he never worked the night shift. And when the rest of us protested, his response was, I like to get home in time to play with my kids, as if the rest of us don't have families we care about or our needs don't matter. And we actually took that up all the way to the CEO of the company and basically gave him an ultimatum. You're going to have to either choose to let us run our own department and run it fairly, or we're all going to quit and leave. And he chose to stand by his director. So about three quarters of us quit and left all at once. But the uh, educational part of that story is that even if you know what you want and know what you're getting into, all jobs come with surprises.
1: So you touched on something interesting the different types of not only practice environments but specifically the groups that you get hired into with democratic group or a contract group could you go into kind of explaining how those work
2: yeah one of the great things about emergency medicine is the variety of employment settings you can work in you can go just about anywhere you want in the world and get any kind of job you want the drawback of that is it's a lot of decision making uh, which can be stressful but an emergency physician can be an employee which most residents are aware of because they're employees and their attendings are usually employees of a medical school. But you can also be an employee in a government job like the Indian Health Service or the VA or the military. If you're part of an independent democratic group, it means that the emergency physicians own their own practice. So they're partners in a group and owners, but technically they're usually still employees because the corporation they create pays them as employees. But the great thing about being in an Democratic group is the transparency. Everybody knows where the money's coming from. Everybody knows where it's going. Everybody knows uh, their colleagues' practice patterns and statistics, like patients per hour. Everybody knows everything. It's completely transparent, and everything's decided by Democratic vote, so it's very fair. The risk of that type of practice is that some big contract management group, like MCARE, uh, which is now known as Envision, can come in and take your contract, and suddenly you're out of a job. That's less likely to happen, obviously, if you're a hospital employee. The other very common mode of practice is to be an independent contractor. And since I'm semi-retired and doing locum tenens work, now that's what I am. The difference with that is you don't get any benefits except usually malpractice insurance. But it makes a lot of things tax-deductible. So, for instance, uh, when I go out of town to work a job, the money I spend on food is tax deductible. I get reimbursed for uh, hotels and mileage, so that's not deductible. But buying scrubs becomes deductible. Having my lab coats laundered is deductible.
1: I would imagine you would have to be pretty on top of your paperwork and your finances to be able to...
2: Yeah, you have to keep, keep up with all that and keep records. Mm-hmm. So there are advantages and disadvantages to every form of practice. And the same is true of jobs. No job is perfect, so you have to know what you're willing to give up and what is really a deal-breaker for you. Mm -hmm.
1: So um, you had said at the beginning that you were really interested in getting back to a particular location. So let's start with people that have a geographical area in mind. How do they go about scouting out that particular area and figuring out what job would work for them in that area?
2: Well, the obvious place to start with a job search is to look in the classified ads, either in common sense, especially if you're looking for a democratic group, or in Annals of Emergency Medicine or the Journal of Emergency Medicine or any of the many free throwaway newsletters we get. I think the one thing residents often overlook that they need to know about is that if you're committed to a geographic area, especially if you're looking for a democratic group, those jobs are often never advertised because those slots are filled so quickly by physicians that the group knows. So if, if you want to go to a particular region or a particular city, you ought to uh, go online, look at the hospitals in that area, go to their websites, figure out whether or not it's an independent group, if that's what you care about. But in any case, figure out who the director of the ED is and send them a letter write a cover letter, include your CV, and tell them you're looking for a job in that area and you'd appreciate them getting back to you if uh, they have any openings. Because, like I said, the best jobs often don't get advertised at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Would it help if um, you used previous alumni from your school or if you knew someone who knew someone, or how does that factor into it?
2: Yeah, any personal contact you might have comes in handy because, like I said, those job slots are often filled by someone the group already knows. So anyone that can vouch for you to the group and say this is a good guy or a good girl will help.
1: So how do we go about, let's say you're a person that has very specific thoughts on what they want out of a group, but they're not tied to any particular area of the country. How would you go about narrowing that down?
2: Well, it depends on exactly what you're looking for. For instance, if you're looking for an independent Democratic group, you can usually figure that out from the hospital's website. All hospital websites have that search for a physician button. And if you just put in emergency medicine and click it, it'll show you all their emergency physicians. If everybody, and from that, you can often tell if they work for Team Health or M-Care. And one of the clues is if everybody has the same address and it's not in the same city where the hospital is, they work for a contract management group. So if it's a Team Health ER, it'll look like all their emergency physicians are from Knoxville. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or if it's MCARE, it'll look like all their emergency physicians are from Colorado. So once you know those little clues, you can usually figure out if it's a contract management group that staffs that ED or an independent group. Mm-hmm. But if that doesn't matter to you, you know, then you can just learn a little bit about the hospital from their website and uh, go from there.
1: Mm-hmm. So you would mentioned also that you've had experience working with the entire spectrum of these type of groups and how your needs have changed over time. Can you kind of run us through the progression of your career and how your needs changed as you got older?
2: Yeah, like I said, uh, I selected my first job based on location and the amount of trauma and critical illness they saw and thought I could put up with working for a contract management group. But... We were treated so unfairly it eventually got under my skin and I just couldn't tolerate it anymore. So then I went, for trauma and critical care, I went looking at an academic medical center and was an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Vanderbilt for eight years. Eventually, I got old enough that I was less of an adrenaline junkie and didn't care so much about trauma and critical illness. I wanted more time off and more money, basically a better lifestyle and more time to travel, which is important to me. So there was an independent Democratic group in the Nashville area where I knew some people. And about once a year, they would call me and ask, are you ready to get out of academics yet? And year after year, I said no. And then one day, I was literally at work, and they called the ED and asked to speak to me and said, well, you ready to leave academics yet? And it it just suddenly struck me because I was about to just automatically say no. And then I, I just froze for a second and pondered it. And then I said, you know what? I think I am, and going to a community hospital from an academic hospital resulted in an immediate $50,000 a year raise, and this was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. so it's going to be more now, and that was before I became a partner. There was a two-year track to partnership, and then it was another $30,000 a year, so I was working probably two-thirds as many shifts per month as I did in academia and you know making $80,000 a year more. So it, it totally changed my lifestyle. It allowed me to travel and allowed me to save so much money that now uh, I'm semi-retired and working halftime at 59. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for four years.
1: So there are a lot of people that I've met that work at multiple sites at one time. What's your view on that in particular?
2: Well, it can be helpful if you're talking about multiple sites, but the same group. Depending on how different those sites are, it can give you a, a sense of variety and change of pace, which is helpful. So if you know, half your shifts are in an urban trauma center where you're just getting crushed from the moment you walk in the door until the moment you leave, it might be nice to work some other shifts at some tiny rural critical access hospital where you can actually sleep at night and the pace is very slow. So uh, it can prevent burnout just by having some variety. If you're working at two different locations and two different groups, it can give you some job security because whether you're an employee or an independent contractor, an owner, or working for a contract management group, jobs in emergency medicine are just inherently unstable. Contracts change hands at a moment's notice. And unfortunately, even in this day and age, emergency physicians are often fired for no good reason at all just because they stepped on the wrong toes and they don't get due process or peer review. So having two different employers gives you a backup in case you lose a job.
1: Mm -hmm. How was it transitioning from facilities without residents to a facility with residents and then vice versa? How did that affect your practice?
2: Uh, Working with residents was great. I loved that. The great thing about that is that even things that get mundane and routine, If you're in a teaching hospital, they're fresh and exciting to somebody, whether it's a medical student or an intern or a resident, and that helps keep it fresh and interesting for the attending. So I loved teaching residents. I was willing to teach medical students in order to teach residents, but I love teaching emergency medicine as a specialty. And to this day, that's the one part of academics I miss. Mm -hmm. But like I said, in return for giving that up, I got a lot more free time and a lot more money. And I guess that's one of the important things residents have to understand when they're selecting a job is that no job is perfect. No job will give you everything and be stable. Mm -hmm. Even a job that looks perfect at the start, you know, the hospital administrator may change. Well, in fact, a good example of that is when I was with a Democratic group, I was at an HCA hospital. And it had a great administrator. One of the things that worried me about going from academia to HCA, a for-profit hospital change, was I was afraid they were going to be stingy and, you know, pinch every penny till it screamed and that we wouldn't have the supplies we needed to do our jobs well. Mm -hmm. And that just wasn't the case. It was very efficient. But the administrator's attitude was, what can I do to help you do your job better? So we had everything we needed and we pretty much ran our own department. We made all clinical decisions, and if any decision had clinical implications, we made it. But unfortunately, that hospital administrator moved on, and HCA, I believe, changed its management philosophy, and the whole nature of my job changed. We were forced to adopt an EMR that's probably the worst in the industry over our objections. Mm -hmm. HCA has gone uh, metric crazy, I saw one of the best emergency physicians I've ever known get fired because she had a a long turnaround time. You know, they ignored the fact that she had fewer complaints than anyone in the department because she spent a lot of time with patients, fired her for being slow. Mm -hmm. So the, the moral of that story is that even a job that looks perfect and is perfect can change out from under you. So, I think emergency physicians, more than any other medical specialty, have to be prepared to adapt and improvise and overcome Mm -hmm. because we live in an unstable world.
1: Yeah. So let's say you found the group that you want to practice with, found the location, and they hand you a contract and you're looking over it. And obviously reviewing contracts is a whole different subject in itself, but what are some of the big things that you look for to make sure they have or don't have, I guess, in reviewing contracts? Well, I
2: think before you get to the contract evaluation, when you're visiting the site and interviewing and deciding whether or not you want to even tell them you'd like the job, you have to consider, again, what you want from the job and think about what questions you want to ask. Like I said, early in my career, I cared about seeing trauma and critical illness, and I learned over time that if you just ask a community hospital emergency physician, do you see any trauma? They'll go, yeah, we see some trauma here. That really doesn't tell you anything. You've got to ask specific questions like, when was the last time you put in a chest tube? Now that will give you some useful information. (laughs) Or if you care about uh, seeing sick kids, when was the last time you intubated a child? You've got to ask things, and again, it's shocking in this day and age, but I've seen some hospitals where emergency physicians even now are not allowed to use propofol or ketamine. Mm
0: -hmm. So you've got
2: to ask about things like that. Mm -hmm. Because if the answer is anesthesia won't let us use that, that shows that the people who run the hospital don't understand emergency medicine and don't let the emergency physicians run their own department. So that problem is going to rear its ugly head in a lot of other ways besides just the fact that you don't get to use ketamine. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, before you get... To see the contract you've got to figure out what you want from the job and figure out what specific questions will give you the information you need to even say I think I'd like to work here let's talk about the contract Mm -hmm. and in that same vein usually when you go to interview somewhere you're talking to the director you need to ask the director would you give me a list of all your emergency physicians with their contact info because I'd like to call them and talk to them." he or she should not have a problem with that it's a very reasonable question And if they do have a problem with it, that's a red flag. The other thing to ask is, can you give me the contact information for somebody that's left in the last two or three years? And talk to someone who's left the group and find out why. Mm -hmm. And again, if they're unwilling to share that information, that's a red flag. Now, if they say, well, you know, actually no one's left in the last 10 years, that's good news. Mm -hmm. After that, if you actually get to the stage where you're looking at a contract, that's such a complicated issue that uh, I would recommend that you go to the Academy's website and read the resources on contract evaluation. I guess the main thing I would look for is a sense of reciprocity. That if they say you can't leave the job unless you give them 90 days notice, they can't fire you without giving you 90 days notice. Everything ought to be balanced. Mm-hmm. And watch out for clauses that say you waive your right to due process. I mean, nobody gets due process for the first year or two. You've got a probationary period. But after that, an emergency physician should not be able to be fired for cause without peer review and due process. And I'll give you an example of why. This happened to me just a few months ago. I was working at a rural hospital in Tennessee that had a fairly busy ED and waiting on the radiologist to read a study for me. And I needed to have the official reading before I could transfer this patient and ask the x-ray tech, hey, could you ask the radiologist to read this study for me? I need to move on. Well, the radiologist calls, and I go to the phone thinking he's just going to give me the report, and he starts literally screaming at me. And I apologize for the language, but this is a quote. He said, you are just a itinerant worker. So after I actually got the radiology report, I called the director and told him what had happened and said you know this is unacceptable unprofessional behavior and i'm not going to tolerate it and he said you're right that's awful i thought that was going to be the end of it apparently the radiologist goes to the hospital administrator and demands that i be taken off the schedule and for reasons i still don't understand the hospital administrator was so weak he complied and i've heard that kind of story from a lot of emergency physicians but that's the first time it's ever happened to me but that shows you the importance of having due process and peer review, and uh, no contract should waive your right to due process
1: Do you suggest having a lawyer on board to review your contract and be a part of the signing process?
2: He doesn't necessarily have to be there for the signing, but yes, you should have a lawyer look at contracts, preferably a lawyer with medical experience, and even best, a lawyer with emergency medicine experience. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, a couple final questions. What are some things that, looking back on your career, some things that you wish you could tell your younger self to avoid?
2: It's not really about job selection, but I think the single most important thing I would have told myself and that I would tell residents now is rent, don't own. No matter how thoroughly you evaluate a job and no matter how well you think you understand what you're getting into, you never really understand a job until you've worked there for a year. And if you're going to an emergency department that uh, is in a small town or a rural area, so that changing jobs means picking up and moving, then start off renting because you just don't know how it's going to turn out. And if you find something in the contract or the job that you didn't recognize as a problem but obviously becomes a problem, it's a lot easier to renegotiate if your director knows you're just renting and you can pull up stakes and move if you have to. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest piece of advice is rent, don't own. And the second is also financial rather than about job evaluation. It's especially when you transition from residency to attending, live beneath your means. This is the biggest chance of your life to save money. I'm not saying don't elevate your lifestyle at all. I'm just saying, Don't elevate it as much as you think you can based on your attending salary. So live beneath your means. Save, you know, 15 to 25% of your income per year, depending on what kind of retirement plan you get from your employer. Because, as I said before, we live in an unstable world as emergency physicians, and it's very important that you have at least six months of living expenses saved up in a liquid form like cash or money market accounts because that way, if you suddenly lose a job unexpectedly, it's an inconvenience, not a disaster. If you're cash poor and lose a job, that's a disaster.
1: Interesting thoughts. I think this will be a point of transition for us or the third years who are becoming new attendings that they'll experience. And the rest of us are quickly looking forward to having actual income and uh, hopefully spending it wisely. So, Thank you very much for all of your input, and I hope this was helpful to all our listeners. Thank
0: you so much.
2: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.